Whether you're at a game table, in your comfiest chair reading a book, or listening at home, there's nothing like a great adventure story. But they don't happen by accident. Welcome to the Joy of GMing, a special interview series on the craft of great gaming. There's just something magic about sitting down to a good table with great friends, isn't there? If you're a lifelong gamer or a newbie rolling up your first character sheet, if you're a DM or a GM or just can't get enough table talk in your day, this is the show for you. Each episode, we'll bring you amazing guest speakers to talk about writing games and running them, building fantastic worlds and compelling story arcs, and oh-so-useful tricks of the trade. Hear some amazing stories, get inspired for your next game, and join us for an hour or so of lively conversation. I'm Casey Jones, writer and voice actor. Over the last dozen years, I've written and produced screenplays, children's animation for TV and film, graphic novels, stage plays, murder mysteries, and audio adventures. I've also been writing and running tabletop games for over 10 years. Join me as we dive deep into creativity with fellow experts in making stuff up. This sister series to Anywhere But Now, our Doctor Who actual play podcast, will be released between mods or episodes with our ongoing serialized show. We'll cover some making of and behind the scenes tidbits of our latest mod as well, so do stick around. And now, our special guest today is Ryan Blake, host of Wibbly Wobbly Dicey Wicey, the Doctor Who RPG podcast. Welcome, Ryan. It's nice to have you here. It's lovely to be here. It's lovely to be here. Ryan, I understand you've run games in Doctor Who and Star Trek with icons, Electric Bastion Land, Blade Runner, and even Rocket Age. And I wanted to ask you, Ryan, what keeps you coming back to sci-fi games again and again? So I didn't come to role-playing through the usual Dungeons and Dragons route. I actually came to it because I discovered my first ever game was DC Heroes First Edition. Yeah, and I'm a huge lifelong superhero fan, completely in parallel Mm -hmm. with my being a science fiction fan. So, as you sort of said in your introduction, the idea of being able to create something in a universe you love, mm. that was so compelling to me. And I just instantly thought, okay, when you're a GM, it's all about what if. What if X meets mm. Y? What if the characters do X and causes Y to happen? And then they choose mm. Z and then X again and things like that. So, when you're, and so I was familiar with most of the science fiction universes that were available to mm-hmm. me. And obviously I'm English, as you can probably tell from my mm. voice. So Doctor Who was part of my childhood. Like I said, the, the idea of contributing something to the rich tapestry of that mm. universe was 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 something that was like, yes, please. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, uh, so that's how, how I came to it. My, the order I sort of went in was DC Heroes, Star Wars D6, some Phase Rip. Mm-hmm. There were some previous versions of the Doctor Who role-playing mm-hmm. game. They were distinct in their approach, let's put it that way. And then of course, Star Trek, well for me about three or four different flavors of system. Mm-hmm. And and now of course, Doctor Who has just recently had its first ever second edition proper. Yes, I am super excited about the second edition. Um, I was a little skeptical of it at the very beginning of like, well, it wasn't broke, why did they fix it? But I was immediately turned around by the removal of traits and the addition of distinctions and those short-term, long-term goals of the characters have really 
changed the the elegance of the game because beyond whatever the goal of the mod might be, your characters still have their own driving goals of what they're trying to do with their version of events. And it's made it a lot easier, not only to keep in mind of what the players want for their characters. Okay, I've got these PCs to work with and here are their primary goals. How do I weave that into the next adventure we're playing today? Yeah, that's a very handy feature for, for GMs. I should add at this point, just not by way of a plug, but just for clarity, that Anywhere um, But Now is an actual play podcast and a, and a really lovely one. Oh, thank you. Um, Wibbly Wobbly Dice Dicey is about the system and about settings, mm-hmm. analysing things. So so it's interesting. I think we, we come to it from sort of two different sort of perspectives, podcast-wise mm-hmm. anyway. Um, but yes, I, the second edition, I, I was very much like you in that I didn't think the system was broken. It needed clarity in certain areas, mm-hmm. and the traits thing had grown a little bit out of control. It was cumbersome. Like, the number of details that would apply to a given character that they hadn't actually paid for with experience points could get a little out of hand. Yeah, so I really wanted to pick your brains on this. Regarding the whole traits distinction mm-hmm. thing, only extraordinary kind of non-human things get turned into distinctions. Whereas before, traits, you could have character elements that were just about your personality mm-hmm. that had a statistical effect on mm-hmm. the game. And now, anything to do with your character like that, for example, Amy and Rory have it for each other. True partners. Yeah, there's a trait that they have to describe their like relationship. And that would give them a bonus. It, you know what, I've seen various different versions of those characters, so you're, you're probably right. Whereas before, in the game, with first edition, you would have, if Amy and Rory did something that related to their relationship, the trait would confer a bonus. Now, essentially, that just becomes part of the role-playing element. So if your characters just role-play something in the game is relevant to their relationship, the GM just gives a bonus anyway because it's good role-playing. For our table, because house rules are a thing, you know, whatever table you're going to go to, the, the GM there or the DM there have their own flavor they like to put on things. For instance, one of our house rules is that in addition to double sixes, meaning it could not have gone better, double snake eyes, meaning it could not have gone worse, double threes at our table mean it, you got the averagest average to ever average. <laughs> Like it that. gives players a chance of accomplishing something tricky that might ordinarily be out of their wheelhouse. You know, it's like, oh, I barely managed to make right. that work the way it is intended to work. Okay, good for me. But it also just adds a little bit of extra flavor of like, okay, here is your here is your chocolate double scoop. Here is your mint chocolate chip. And oh, here, you get a nice scoop of vanilla as a palate cleanser. <laughs> so how would you... Your character is trying to break through a the Dalek firewall using a TARDIS computer, and they roll double threes. So what's the, what's the average result would be? Okay, so one of the beautiful things about the second edition are the ones and the sixes that elevated it from, okay, you have succeeded, to, okay, you have succeeded, but this little extra bit went wrong. Or, okay, you succeeded, and you got this extra bit right. So you've got yes buts and no buts and yes ands and no ands. Um, With the averagest average, you don't get anything at all. 
if you had a Time Lord on the TARDIS trying to hack into a Dalek computer and they got the averagest average, they might be able to read the information, but not necessarily update it. They might have gotten in without being detected. You know, there are like they get no bonuses, they get no penalties, but it still gives them the chance to push the story forward in a way that leaves a vacuum for some of that creativity to pick up in the next beats, you know? No, yeah, I, I, I see that. I, I think there's some definite utility mm -hmm. to that. And I do know, having spoken to Dave Chapman of Cubicle 7 a few mm -hmm. times, he said he's very much in favor of people having house rules. He's got no, yeah. you know, Dave Chapman being the guy who created mm -hmm. the system. He said, yeah, house rules are, you know, absolutely wonderful. He kind of appreciates them, so. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and the funny thing is, um, I mean, you're an actor, you, you'd appreciate this more than a lot of people. The, the way the, the system is set up with the no but, yes but, yes mm -hmm. and, it's very similar to the rules of improv yeah. anyway. I mean, it's essentially that's the rule of improv, mm -hmm. isn't it? Yes and is such a powerful piece of the engine. It's the gas in the engine that, that, that helps get it going. Um, and we'll talk about yes and in a minute, but the no but also is that same kind of creativity. Because what I've learned firsthand with our Time Lord, the Fixer, played by the wonderful Brand Osorio. Brand's roles are not historically very high. There are a lot of ones in the numbers. Mm -hmm. And we have learned firsthand that low roles can lead to high adventure. Because with those disastrous roles and with those, no. But here's the thing and like, oh no, and it's gonna be that little bit harder because now you've got people following you and tilting their heads in curiosity what you're doing behind this security checkpoint. The more adversity that we can just ratchet up little by little as we go, helps contribute to that ongoing tension. Yeah, no, I, I see the wisdom of that. On the subject of distinctions, like with Rory and Amy's true partnership or true pairing, having a having a distinction for our house, it does add an extra two to the role. Recently, we had a character face off against a man in a dog mascot costume on part one of The Wages of Joy. Yep, yep, I know. The, the dog in the costume has been effectively brainwashed, so the person in the costume thinks he's a dog. And when he is told by one of our players to sit, bad dog, the character Mabe is able to point out is like, actually, yeah, I grew up around dogs. As it was pointed out in this previous bit, I'm like, that, that's a valid point. They know how to talk to dogs to get them to behave. And it influenced the role. It didn't completely change the outcome, but it did give them a little extra chance of making the results handcrafted, custom tailored to their player, to their character's experience, you know? Mm. Something I've learned with other GMs, especially like Jacob Cordis, our last guest host on The Joy of GMing, was that improv can lead you to those really interesting choices by saying yes and, by um, veering away from being too precious with your prep. But uh, as someone that uh, runs as many sci-fi games as you do, what keeps bringing you back to Doctor Who? Is it your favorite game to run? Is it your favorite game to play? I'd have to say yes. I, overall, I mean, I've been role-playing now for, let me think, 35 years? With Doctor Who, I was I was always a fan. But when I was getting to the, about 12, 13, I first started role-playing, there wasn't any Doctor Who going on on TV. Mm -hmm. And so I couldn't really talk to any of my friends about Doctor Who at school because it was like not 
the cool thing. It was all Star Trek Next Gen, which I also love, but, you know, wasn't my first science fiction mm -hmm. thing. The first version of Doctor Who role-playing that came out was the FASA system, at which was the early 80s. It was essentially the FASA Star Trek system. Mm. There were some great supplements for it, but rules-wise, it did not really work for Doctor Who, not hugely well, which is not to say people didn't get lots of mileage out of it, because they did. Later on in the 90s, when Virgin had the rights, they released a version called Time Lord, mm. which was this one-and-done system. And you could not, there was no experience point system. You couldn't create new characters mm. with it. You could literally only use the characters they gave you, which are the sort of characters throughout Doctor Who's mm -hmm. history. So again, whilst I did get that, it was not an imperative for me to run, let's put yeah. it that way. Plus it was the 90s, it wasn't on TV. So finding Doctor Who players where I lived was not a particularly feasible um, concept. So when it came out, when, what, 2007, 2008? Right. Yeah, the, the Vortex came out I absolutely jumped at it and I kind of decided look he, he, Doctor Who's back on TV people like it it's it's now fortunately the world has caught up mm. to me and now the world is cool as well because I was always cool for liking <laughs> Doctor Who and now you guys are so so um I made my mind up I'm getting it and I'm reading it and I'm gonna find somebody to run it with I, even if there were there are some bumps in the road I'm, I'm gonna make a go yeah. of this and luckily the system was really really good uh, it's still one of my favorite well it is one of my favorite mm -hmm. systems and because the doctor universe it's infinite you can go in your own and do anything and it's got to the point where in my campaign so I, i've i've plotted out a five season campaign nice called the eternity of the other we've literally just reached the halfway point in the campaign we've literally sort of reached the point of no return and we've got a, a definite flavor in the campaign that is doctor who but is our own much like anywhere but now's whilst we do have christmas episodes we don't have christmas specials we kind of have we have inter-season specials mm. and in those to show the flexibility of the game i set myself a challenge and i said to the players right here are a list of other science fiction universes you guys all vote on it and whatever universe you choose i will run the sort of summer special in that universe we, you, your tardis will somehow get there Oh, interesting. The other thing we also have, rather than sort of shoehorn in the Doctor into our campaign, I said, right, you guys have a vote. You decide which Doctor you want to see next in the show, in our show, as we call it. Mm -hmm. And we will have, you know, we'll, we'll have an episode. They'll, 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 we'll have an episode where you meet that Doctor. You know, yeah. just, just because, you know, it's part of the fun of it. And w when I was writing the campaign, I, I assume you had a similar thing where you thought, Right, this is not going to be the Doctor. This is going to be my own Time Lord, and we're going to create our own yeah. mythology within it. So, yeah, yeah. The when Russell T Davies kicked off New Who with the notion that the Doctor was the only one left, the last last of the Time Lords, the Time War that pushed everything off of the table essentially for the longest time. It was a strong choice, and I understand why he made it, or at least I think I do. And it certainly does add a lot, not the least of which is survival's guilt and, you know, melodrama and things like that. It makes the Doctor that much more special if they're the only one. That is not necessarily the kind of t storytelling I'm interested in doing because a Doctor who is the only one cannot really change. He cannot, they cannot really grow in my opinion because 
It's been described, like Missy has described companions as their pets. Any Time Lord is going to be hundreds of years older than their companions, so they have different experiences and different perspectives they're looking through. But like famously, over the course of New Who, the Doctor doesn't really fundamentally change. They're always concerned with stopping tyranny. They're always there to thwart the Daleks and make sure that the underrepresented and the people that are being downtrodden stop being so downtrodden. But in terms of his <laughs> interpersonal relationships, he doesn't overshare. He does not open up unless it's, you know, as they fade into the music and he shares an anecdote about Gallifrey that we don't hear the end of. <laughs> and I get that that's not necessarily, you know, fun TV to watch. Uh, someone sharing backstory or opening up to someone that they have a new relationship with. But part of a story is how it affects and changes the character going through it. It's the hero's journey, not the hero's static position that never learns or changes or loses or gains anything, you know? Younger Time Lords are my answer to that. Because I've played with players who bring in PCs of Doctors and their cup of experience is more or less already full. You know, they know what they're gonna do. They know how they're gonna do it. They're not gonna let anything that the other characters say really impact them. They're gonna keep that aloof thing going. And that's fine. Some doctors are aloof. You're playing the game right, great. But for my own personal taste, because it is my table, I want a table where characters can grow. Characters can learn new things, not only about each other, but about themselves. And the Time War as a backstory puts our Gallifreyans in such an interesting headspace because they are now veterans or time war survivors. You know, they were kids coming up when everything was being blasted to smithereens around them. So they've got their own survivor's guilt to deal with and they've got their own PTSD and other things to work through so that the first time they do come up against someone like the Cybermen or the Daleks, there is more of that I don't know what to do because I've never personally faced them before. Instead of, uh, well, I faced them dozens upon dozens of times. I know all their weaknesses and can, you know, aim for the eye stock and this adventure will be over in, in half an hour. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking it would be PTWSD, wouldn't it, I suppose? Post-traumatic Wibbly stress disorder? Post-traumatic stress disorder, yeah, exactly. I think the interesting thing is, is that when this game, Doctor Who role-playing game, first came out, every GM had to make starting initial decision, which was, okay, are we playing the Doctor or are we creating another Time Lord? In which case, how did they survive the Time War? Are we using the Time War? And you don't get a lot of role-playing games that give you a dichotomy like that right up, mm -hmm. right up front, if you see what I mean. But it was I was interested, listening to your podcast, Yeah, uh, it was interesting to me that you embraced it and you actually took on the sort of the idea that there's a whole generation of, of Time Lords and Gallifreyans, I suppose, who have to deal with this. Their initial base starting point is we survived mm -hmm. the war, not not to be clear, but kind of the war to end all wars for them, if you see what I mean. I basically had the first season was them trying to find the dispersed, if you like, essence of the Time Lord who had programmed his TARDIS to pick people up so that they could pick up his pieces and reassemble him. So by the end of the first season, if they reassembled him successfully, 
Fascinating. Then that would be right. Okay, we've now reached the part where Gallifrey has come back, and it's you know, I, I did, you don't need to do this as a GM, but I had it in my mind for some mm-hmm. reason that I wanted our adventures to potentially be going on in the background of the TV universe, which meant for the for the start of it, there could not be a oh, yeah. proper one hundred percent vegan kosher time lord on the TARDIS. Like in terms of canon and timelines like one of the things we aim for with our table is to run an enjoyable game of doctor who for people who don't necessarily know much if anything about doctor who i have run this game for first timers who uh, turn into lifelong fans my spouse took that route Uh, i introduced myself running a table of the wages of joy and they had no idea who the doctor was or what the, like all they'd heard of was like, there's a time machine called the TARDIS. I'm like, great, that's enough. Great, have a seat. In terms of the doctor versus like your time war survivors and the kids picking up and, you know, picking up the baton or the torch and striking out on their own. I have started to view the role of the doctor as like Hamlet, you know? in terms of like everybody's got their own interpretation of it there's a lot of pressure to quote unquote get it right and make it feel like your own um and i wanted to take that pressure off of our players of like you don't have to be the living legend you can be someone who is inspired by the living legend um but what's your take on a time lord what's your focus going to be if it's not that well i want to make everyone better kind of thing without necessarily the doctor's own abandonment issues, etc., cetera, uh, that might shade their decision-making, you know? Yeah, I think it's very interesting the way you've put it because you're right. It, the doctor is very much like Hamlet and it's you want a role-playing game, at least I feel, you want a role-playing game to be an act of creation rather than mm-hmm. interpretation. Mm-hmm. Which, it, which is not to say it's not completely valid to play the doctor and put your spin on them, of course. Oh, not at all. There's plenty of other role-playing podcasts out there where you've got somebody playing a completely made-up version of the Doctor. Mm -hmm. But but you're right, you are, to some extent, and I use the word advisedly, trapped in the vein of the Doctor always wants to do... His motivation is always very, very clear. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, you know there are certain things he will never do and certain things he must do. And that Mm -hmm. that can be very limiting for a role-playing game or character sometimes. As you've done with the fixer, you've got somebody who, at their core, you start with, with most role-playing games, they are basically the hero. At the very least, they're a positive-leaning protagonist. But how you save the day can be so radically different because you can have a hero who says, right, I must save the day and I must let no one die. No one must be harmed. I don't even want people walking on the grass when they're not supposed to. Or you can have heroes who are like, Okay, right, the best way to stop people walking on the grass is I'll blow up the grass before anyone can get to the grass. There you go, the Mm -hmm. day is saved. You might not like it, but ultimately I've done what I've said and I have saved the day technically. (laughs) And that's, I think that- The grass is clear. Yeah, exactly, the grass will never be walked on again. So, and with the character I have in my uh, game, who who is an NPC, which was a very deliberate decision, and we'll, we'll come on to that. Right, so I actually deliberately cast him not to be the anti-Doctor, because that would be a villain, that's the master, effectively. Whilst the Doctor is not in any way a traditional Time Lord, except for maybe his aloofness, and etc., I actually wrote a character who, it would turn out, would be one of the Doctor's stuffy teachers, who was always telling him not to rebel. 
Oh, fine. The idea being that, you know, this is not the Doctor. This is sort of Time Lord who is very Gallifreyan. He's very Time Lordy. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is that their evolution might well be to sort of come round to be a bit more like the Doctor because he would yeah. learn by being around other species that perhaps treating everyone like they're less than you is not the way to go. And so yeah. we've had a lot of blazing arguments in the TARDIS, you know, role-playing about how to deal with this problem and what have you. Because this, this, for example, one of the things I thought about was, right, okay, right, so there's a learning curve for every companion, which is mm. the Doctor brings them on board the TARDIS, they go, oh, it's bigger on the inside, which is still lovely. I'm, I'm, I'm being flippant, but not, you know, negative. And then they would meet X for the first time. They'd meet Y for the first time. Inevitably, mm. they'd meet the Daleks, and the Doctor would have to sell them on the Daleks and say they're the worst thing ever. And this would be very rinse and repeat. And I wanted to bypass that and, and make the players think, okay, right, what is it we are going to be in for? So the Time Lord, the Archivist, his name is. Nice. Yeah, his, uh, his arch enemy is the Collector. So you can see there's a thing going on. He basically, uh, in absentia, got his TARDIS to trick slash coerce the crew who become the party on board the TARDIS. He, it would do that by going along their timeline, finding the point at which they're in the most mortal danger and appearing in front of them and giving them an escape route. So they'd almost yeah. have no choice. And what would happen is the moment they stepped on board the TARDIS and the TARDIS would then upload a whole bunch of information into their heads so that they would have some rudimentary knowledge of piloting the TARDIS they would know who the Daleks were. Basically, the rule was they knew everything that happened on screen that was public facing up, um, up to the end of David Tennant, the 10th Doctor's run. So basically, mm -hmm. they know all the events, the external parts of those events up to the point where David Tennant regenerates. They have been hit in the face with an exposition ray. Essentially. So it would stop because they were all Doctor Who fans. So, you know, they all knew what the, the basic score so it wouldn't mm -hmm. be a matter of, okay, we've got to go through this. They've got, oh, I've got, I mean, I know acting is part of the gig. I'm not disavowing that. But they didn't have to go, oh, it's the Dalek, the Daleks. They look like pepper pots. What are they? And then the time would go, they're the worst thing ever. Run, run, run. Mm. They know all that up front. So all the players had the anticipation of, oh, my God, we already know all this. So what is in store for us? What is going to be a surprise? So I added like an extra layer of intrigue of every time I don't use a Doctor Who traditional TV canon villain, they have no idea what to expect at all because they know to be scared of this, yeah. but they don't know how scared they should be of this, if you see what I mean. I do, I do. Let's talk about the element of surprise because that actually brings us rather neatly to the level of prep that we're talking about versus the amount of improv that goes into a game. For our own stories as GMs, like we're at least partly in some kind of effort, if not control, to create a tone, you know? And yeah. if we're lucky to build in a theme as well. And the pre-packaged baddies of Doctor Who are so distinct and so memorable and so strong um, that one of my favorite things to do with the game version of it is to tweak them and say, well, what is a version of this that might suit my own sensibilities that little bit much more? Or how can we take this and take a villain that has certain characteristics, alter them only a little bit 
and turn it into something that is equally chilling, still tonally consistent with what we're trying to build, and create that air of mystery for players and characters who may or may not be well-versed with who, so that that muscle memory of problem solving and uh, mystery solving and figuring out solutions happens on the fly. There's this great piece of advice for GMs that have struggled with railroading, you know, where there's only one set finished outcome. The advice, which I still love to this day, is that it's not our job to write the ending. It's our job as the GM to figure out what would happen if the good guys do nothing. Mm. If the good guys do nothing, we know we have a pretty good idea of what's going to happen on any given story of who we are deciding to tell. Where things get interesting is being open to yes and, and being open to leaving the beaten path of a prescribed Whovian mystery with monsters to unmask or, you know, a puzzle to solve by the clues or lack of clues that have been presented and still make it feel like you're walking around in an episode of Who, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a very good question you've, you've put forward there because you can't be too rigid because it's a script, not a role-playing yeah. game. So what, what I do is, um, <clears throat> and this is, I'm not saying this is particularly clever, but what I do is, and I do this the season as well as the episode, mm-hmm. <clears throat> I use index cards, okay? And the idea being, right, here, let's say I've got six index cards. Okay. okay. They will have. I will write on them the events in linear order. Okay. So I'll call them one to six. I'll write the events in linear order of what's quote unquote meant to happen if nothing gets interfered with, and I'll put Fun. when the characters appear in them. And mm-hmm. then we, you know, number one is always number one. Kind of has to be. Or so you got to set the scene. And then, sure. depending on what the players do, you know, as you say, we yes and right. Well, these are index cards now. They're not written in stone. So if they mm-hmm. say something in, in on index card one that means, right, well, actually, now that means index card four has to happen. So I move yeah. that around. So now four happens now. And then they do that, and that means, right, now we go back to three, and three leads to two, and then that goes on to five and then six. As long as you've got the core ideas there mm. in a flexible order, then you can shuffle them around according to what the players do. And of course, you know, this is, which is not to say, oh, actually, wait a minute, in, in index card one, they've done something that's not on any of the index cards. So now I'm doing like one B and then, oh, okay, now they're onto index card four. Okay, fine. Mm-hmm. So the idea is, is to to have, as you said, you write the villain plot. You write, a, effectively, you write a story for yourself of, if I didn't have my party coming to this setting, this is what would happen. Mm-hmm. And then they get inserted in and, you know, ripples in the pond kind of a thing. And so the index card thing, I find, because I can flick through those as well, and they can all be in front of me, I can go, oh, okay, well, now we're here. I'll bring that in, and then accept and so forth. So, nice. so, and I also create my NPCs on trading cards. I've got a trading card template that I've made, and I oh, put cool. all the stats on that. And it's quite nice, because I've got like an album now of characters that I can flick nice. through. And so, so and I, I, but I create NPCs like all the time. I'm constantly churning them out. And I just, I have like a vast bank of them now. My my campaign at the moment has over 300 NPCs, most of which have not been used, but plenty of them have, if you see what mm. I mean. And they're there already. Like if I think, right, 
this season, I know they're going to go to this century on Earth, say. Right, well, I can whack out some characters for that, you know. And if I just think of an alien, sometimes if I see something on TV or in a movie and I think, I really like that image, that gives me an idea. Um, although I am about to transfer probably onto postcards because at the moment, the NPCs, I can only fit the stats on, not the background or anything like that. So I'm going to switch right. it to a postcard system um, and have a postcard album instead so I can have it all in one piece. So Nice. That's really nice. Yeah. yeah, with any mod I'm putting together, once the idea has taken shape, that's usually when I start thinking about, okay, well, who's here? Who's in this world that they're going to get a chance to talk to? Why are they important here? What is their contribution to things? Even deciding what those characters want really helps keep it simple um, in my head. I mean, I, I don't keep it in my head. I've got character sheets as PDFs for, yeah. you know, the cast of whatever mod I'm dealing with that day for ease of reference. So I can just, you know, click between pages of the thing because this is a game and it is meant to be fun. And having that prep work done of like, okay, here are some easy to grab NPCs that they can run into um, is it helps keep things moving, you know? And that's really important to for not only the enjoyability of the game, but also just the tempo. Cause with games that are built around franchises, like we are trying, part of the point is to recreate or draw from the well of that flavor of it, you know? And um, that's one of the things I love about Doctor Who as a series is that depending on where the TARDIS ends up that week, you could be walking into a completely different genre of show. Whether, oh, they're off to the Old West and there's going to be a, a six-shooter, uh, there's going to be a, a duel at noon somewhere in the, in, in the making before the end of the day. Or, oh, they're off to a space station where nothing is what it seems and there's a sci-fi mystery to solve. Or, oh, they're off to a water world to have a fun day and explore the science center and meet some interesting people and figure out um, things going on there. And guess what? There are aliens trying to take over because there are almost always aliens trying to take over. Yeah, you never want to leave your front door in the Doctor universe, but... No, 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 no. <laughs> So, yeah, no, it's, uh, um, uh, you're, you're right. I mean, at the end of the day, it is about fun. The thing you've got to remember, though, is as a GM and players, some, sometimes fun kind of means angst and misery because some people like dark adventures and they get a lot more fun out of things being more tortured than Doctor Who, shall we say. I think part of that boils down to player preference and being in touch with what your players are expecting, um, which is a great reason to be using RPG tools like uh, Lines and Veils, you know, getting an idea of what your players are looking for before the game even begins so that you have an idea of, well, are we leaning towards more Doctor Who? Does this team want to be more on the Torchwood side of things with the grit and gritty? And having those expectations ahead of time helps do some of the composing. It helps inform some of your choices. Yeah, no, me too, me too. You, you have to adapt. I mean, it's like going to the cinema. You don't go to see a film in a genre you can't stand, you know? Same way. Yeah, very unlikely. Very unlikely. But with, with, with Doctor Who, it, again, as we said earlier, it's such a wide land, mm -hmm. you know? You have to sort of like say, right, this is what we want. This is where we're going in, in that sense. So, 
Yeah, and what you were saying earlier about canon and how much your players happen to know about the universe of Doctor Who and why there are or are not any other surviving Time Lords in it. For the for the continuity of Anywhere But Now, like the kicking off point is somewhere around the middle to end of Capaldi's run of Doctor Who, where Gallifrey was, however briefly, in the sky again, and there was a small repairing, rebuilding community of Time Lords putting the Citadel back together and, you know, making sure that Gallifrey, however briefly, was in one piece. And I feel like that is where there is plenty of room for a young crop of time-traveling Gallifreyans to say, yeah, no, we don't want to just sit here and wait until we're attacked again by the Daleks or wiped out by the Master again or sacked by the Suntarans for again, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, you you very wisely incorporated that because, I, I mean, I f uh, they haven't met any other Time Lords except the Doctor yet. Um, and I hope none of them are listening, but, but that's going to change because... Mm. Gallifrey is going to be officially back and I completely agree with you my idea was that this is going to be a pretty much a new militant Gallifrey mm. you know and I was and I was thinking okay and again I don't mean this to be clear but is it going to be an isolationist militant Gallifrey where you know they're building their fences really high and really thick or is it going to be a, a kind of a return to the dark times Gallifrey where they're going to be expansionist and the best form of defense is attack. Um, because it's, an, it's a dichotomy that, that you have to sort of deal with. I mean, so I, I did like the fact that you were sort of taking that into account because the Time Lords have literally just gone through an extinction level event that kind of, I don't know how you want to call it, got blipped, got paused, got stopped, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and because of their knowledge of timelines, one of the things that, that, that um, I'm incorporating is this idea that because they're Time Lords, and because, and this this is an interpretation thing, but but if you like, in the original history, Gallifrey was gone. It was blown up. It was destroyed by the moment. Mm -hmm. And because Time Lords are, you know, obviously time sensitive by their very nature, I, 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 I had it that every Time Lord, not every Gallifrey, but every Time Lord on that planet was cognizant of their extinction, that they actually experienced it and then lived to tell the tale of their own extinction. Because both timelines, they were able to sense, feel, endure, whatever you want to call it. So, yeah. so every Time Lord in my campaign, basically, has actually got knowledge of their own death. They've actually experienced their species being wiped out and surviving at the same time. So mm -hmm. there's a huge kind of um, pathology, if you like, trauma, collective trauma yeah. to deal with that they yeah. all have to roll with and deal with. So, and that, that also makes the Time Lord character in my campaign m more of an outsider as well, because because obviously they weren't subject to that because they were technically killed or dispersed before the end of the Time War. So yeah, so it's like I said, the fact that you've incorporated that kind of thinking into your campaign is really interesting, especially with you being young Time Lords who may well be a bit more cocky, shall we say. Cocky might be the right word. There is certainly a bit of a cavalier carefreeness to the Fixer's attitude in the early episodes, the early adventures. And now, a word from today's sponsor.
And I'm quite excited to have our listeners follow our upcoming adventures, especially our next one, which is called Hard Time. That will be coming out the week after this premieres. That doesn't just tell and say about, oh, this is dangerous. This is, this is the, you, 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 you kids be careful out there. Don't crash your time cars. Don't get into any time car accidents, but actually showing what happens when time technology is abused, when it is pushed past the breaking point, what happens when someone with access to time technology without the training and the respect for the power at their fingertips, what happens when those go wrong? And what happens when you're in an environment where those things can go wrong has a really interesting impact, not the least of which because characters can become more united through shared hardship and that definitely happens. It also gives the fixer a learning experience of, <laughs> I swear to God, at one point in the, in the upcoming episode, he actually says, I know what I'm doing. And then wow. causes something Oof. that turns the whole direction of this mod on its head a full 90 degrees, if not 180. And like, okay. Yeah, there's this other thing you're going to be dealing with for part two. Have fun with that. So enjoy the mild spoilers, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I just love, I, 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 I'm trying to mix, imagine the look on your face when the player said that and you just, just thought, yes, come to me, my foolish, foolish time lord. Well, I wasn't trying to set him up for failure. I was trying to, like, I, I had set up a table where the word precarious gets used at least once or twice, establishing over the course of the episode exactly how damaged things have become so far, who is taking advantage of that for better or ill, how that is affecting the locals, and sitting comfortably over here is the Time Lord and the person in charge, and they're making those decisions that impact other people. <laughs> oh man, I won't call it a disaster, but it is very, very fun to watch unfold. <laughs> Yeah, when a player says that, it's like a gift, isn't it? I mean, um, it's, it's interesting you say that about the abuse of time travel technology because the current season three of, of the campaign that I'm running, mm -hmm. um, the main thrust of it is something called the Fixed Points War. Oh, nice. Basically, because of a partial multiversal collapse, fixed points for this season, all fixed points are now suddenly no longer fixed. History Ooh. can be utterly rewritten. So the characters are racing from place to place if they nudge history back onto the right track, it becomes a fixed point again. You know, mm. they're kind of preparing it as they go. And they're going from place to place. And what I've done is, well, so two things. One, they had a character there who was in a specific position, a fixed point Geiger counter almost. Mm. So they've got a way of detecting where they need to go. What I decided was all, these, all the fixed points they were going to have to tackle were going to be seemingly incredibly low key events, very personal ones that have a knock-on effect yeah. to bigger events in history. You might have, before Julius Caesar gets assassinated, it won't be, you won't have to make sure he gets assassinated, but maybe someone was delivering something to Julius Caesar's villa that made him go out to receive the invite and go to the Senate to get killed, something like that. So the task would be make sure mm -hmm. that that delivery gets there on time something small like that so they can observe the mm -hmm. rippling ripple effect and things like that so that's their sort of like um this is this is their sort of current season season arc and like i said because i write it on index cards if they do one thing and it makes more sense for them to go somewhere else next time 
they won't go from one, two, three, four, five, six. You know, they'll they'll displace. Plus, you you write an adventure and it gets run, and the tone of it shifts because the players decide to do something, or you see an opportunity to do something that'd be very interesting, and the tone shifts. So you don't want to have two episodes mm-hmm. of a very similar tone back to back necessarily. So you shift No, no, you don't. That has actually really impacted the arc of our first season of Anywhere But Now, Semester Abroad, because unlike television, where all of the characters' choices are scripted and planned in advance, um, we, like, a good percentage, I would say almost half, if not more, of the game's magic is in the improv and the decisions happening in the moment. And they have altered the trajectory of our first season. Games that might have been played in one order have been changed. Characters have latched on to very specific and actionable long-term goals that have changed the trajectory of the whole season. Part of it is to make sure it has that balance of, okay, well, we don't want two episodes back to back that feel overly similar. You know, we want to keep it stimulating. We want to keep it stimulating by by continually changing just a little bit the flavor here, the nuance there. There's some difference in the layer of intensity and stakes Yeah, no, absolutely. You You have to keep it within a context, but you have to keep moving things around. I mean, like I said, my characters are very rarely on Earth. I try to keep it off Earth unless there's something really important going on. So the good thing is that gives you a certain level of flexibility in terms of in terms of history, because you can go to any planet in the universe and it can be like the Wild West. It doesn't have to be in the past of Earth kind of a thing. So, so yes. um, but again, like I said, when it's like a, a Christmas special, well, you don't want it to be too bleak. You want it to be Christmassy. So you've got a tone in mind there, obviously. Mm. And when it's a season finale, it's usually the culmination of a whole bunch of plots and subplots. So it has to be fairly big and dramatic. There, there are certain themes you have to sort of follow, but if, if you have an adventure that just goes dark, for some reason it goes dark, you don't want the next adventure to be exactly the same. Yeah, so you move you move a, a, a maybe a more lighthearted adventure from later in the season and move it there and, and juggle it around. I mean, Doctor mm-hmm. Who is pretty masterful at this when it comes to changing tones and still being Doctor yeah. Who. Although, mm-hmm. speaking of tones the the last david tennant the 10th doctor adventure um uh the um end of time and uh, that that one basically there was mm-hmm. this this is me just sort of venting there were so many niggles i had with the way things just shouldn't work in that episode that i actually wrote our season one finale <laughs> so that our characters could be involved in the background and 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 rectify things that i thought just did not make any sense as long as you're happy, as long as well, you're yeah, the, play, happy I mean, the, the players loved the it. Matters. They really enjoyed it because it was like a because they what happened was they became fully aware in the in the game that they could not be seen. They must not mm. reveal themselves. They had to stay covert because they couldn't afford to muck up history and blah blah blah. They mm. had to make sure things went not according to the episode, but they had their objectives. They knew certain things had to happen for them to get into the mess in the first place. So they were quite happy jinking around. So I, mm. so whenever I watch the episode again, I watch it and I think, oh, they were there just out of shot doing this. They really enjoyed that because it was a good way of weaving them into the, you know, Doctor Who proper, if you like, with, without sort of like being sure. over the top. Part of the fun is bolstering that suspension of disbelief. There have been little fixes and little notes like that peppered in, things I didn't necessarily care for in one episode or another of Doctor Who that 
you know, don't necessarily have to have much of an impact, yeah. but still just bug you a little bit. We recently mentioned in one of our mods that the Zygons, I loved Capaldi's era of who. I'm interested in the Zygons as this Cold War leftover and, you know, supplying paranoia and everything. Capaldi had this two-parter with the Zygons that ultimately didn't go anywhere because the big hook at the end was we've done this mm. seven or eight times now and we've had to just wipe everyone's memory the last six times. And I'm like, that's not a story. No one's learning anything. You're just learning that they don't, they can't do it. And if they have to keep hitting the reset button, that premise is broken. Like you're just gonna keep hitting the reset button again and again. No one's learning anything. No one's doing anything differently. Things are just getting worse. In, in my campaign, basically I was looking through the timeline for a century that I could sort of like make my own. The 55th, not much has happened in Doctor in the 55th century. There was uh, a, a, an event, uh, an, an, a kind of uh, infiltration by this species called the Nullus, who are, just to give you a shorthand, kind of Lovecraftian cosmic horror kind of thing. And after that, there weren't so many humans left. So mm -hmm. they started to genetically engineer themselves, create people, and not, not in a, but not in a vastly dystopian way. People still got free will and blah, 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 but repopulate and to give a balanced society. Mm -hmm. You've got this gene genetically fabricated if you like human race at the time i, I just thought about what, what what interesting twist can i put on a classic villain okay so what who's involved in genetics mm. in doctor who and, and i thought okay well the centaurans are, are a clone race so they must have pretty good knowledge of clone yes. of, of genetics and dna if these two species meet what's going to happen and i thought okay there's going to be a genetics cold war neither side's going to invade just yet because they want to make sure they can win. Centaurans mm. have been fighting for 50 squillion years against the Rutans. They're going to sort of like try to infiltrate and find out from each other. Right, what tweaks have they made to their DNA? What tweaks have you made to your DNA? What can we steal? And you've got these like raids and, think, and intelligence gathering and spying between the two species, all preparing for this, you know, what is eventually like a, an explosive hot war. But I just thought the Centaurans would lose every war if all they did was just charge at the enemy, you know? They must have a science division that's pretty good. They do. They must have, like, you know, the ability to understand biology. And the Centaurans, although they got made a bit comical, mm -hmm. they're not idiots. They, they they haven't been wiped out by the Rutans, who are shape changers. The Centaurans are always at war. Mm -hmm. We always see them shooting things in a hot war. What would they be like in a cold war? What would it be like where intelligence is more important than just which end of the gun do you point at the enemy? That's a really interesting question. In addition to Anywhere But Now, I also still run tables for other people. Um, and one of our PCs that we had a nice run with was a pacifist Santaran. The doctor had shown up in their backstory and um, they were the sole Santaran survivor of that particular incident and wound up at the doctoral program as a companion to find out how the other half lives and see what it's like to, you know, to find non-violent means of exploring and visiting new places. You still had a Santaran, this potato-faced, squat little person who, you know, waddles around and bumps into things and pushes buttons too hard and things like that, but violence was no longer their driving response to everything. And that was that was really fun to explore with that pacifist <laughs> Centaurin. If violence wasn't his motivating imperative, what did he want? 
in life? Did he was he or was that what he was figuring out? Uh, that's a good question. Dig the Destroyer was the name of that Suntaran, and their their long term goal was to make up for the destruction oh, they had wrought right, okay. as a general, as a oh good yeah. I love this series. I love that there's room with the Doctor time traveling all over the place and not spending more than two consecutive episodes in any given time zone. There is just so much room to play in. Well, the Doctor wasn't there that week to stop the alien uprising. There's a lot of slack to be picked up. <laughs> yeah. As far as the show is concerned, you mentioned like writing out and planning out five seasons. Right now we have two seasons plotted out. I haven't gotten any further than that because I don't want the choices that the characters are going to surprise me with over the next dozen episodes to get lost on the larger scale of what's going to be going on. Yeah, very nice. And yeah, I'm I'm excited. I've been looking forward to doing a project like this for years and feeling like I hadn't earned it, feeling like I hadn't, like I wasn't worthy in some way of putting my material out there in front of other people to enjoy for free. And if there are young GMs out there who are worried that they need more experience before they can really quote unquote get started, I would like to remove that line of thought. Get out there, mm. GM, play at other tables, run games, make mistakes, figure out what your version of a good game feels like, because it isn't going to happen solely at your own table. You're going to experience things at other tables or actual plays or guest spotting. Find out from firsthand experience what works, what doesn't work. And if you're really lucky, why? Yeah, you've got to learn by doing. So you can start making more educated choices. You're, yeah, you're absolutely right. When you're a GM, you've got to learn by doing. There's an expression that no plan survives the first shot of battle. Same thing's true for role-playing. I don't mean that in a... Mm. I'm not trying to be glib, but it's the same is true for, for... Your players will do something that will throw you. They will. It's inevitable. And, yes. you, and the only way to learn how to yes. roll with that and adapt and improve is by doing it. And that's something that comes purely from the experience of doing it, not the experience of reading every GM help manual and guide you can find. Exactly. What, what was your what was your first uh, game that you GM'd, if you don't mind me asking? The first game I ever GM'd was uh, Vampire the Masquerade or Vampire Requiem in college. It was LARP. It was at least a dozen college kids <laughs> loitering around the campus after dark with a couple <laughs> of creepers. <laughs> and just figuring out not only what the characters wanted and what they were interested in doing with their time together, but also getting a feel for like, well, I want to write a season of with an arc. I want to pit them against enemies that gradually reveal they're stronger than they look. Buffy the Vampire Slayer was a huge impact on me as a kid because that was one of the first shows that had continuity from week to week. Before then, it was all Monster of the Week or Case of the Week without an ongoing seasonal arc. One of the things I love about putting together a Doctor Who mod from scratch with a planet that's never been seen before, with aliens that may or may not have been seen before, is I am setting a table. I am putting out pieces that our characters can pick up, they can play with them, they can spin them over in their hands and look at them from different angles and whatnot. And some of them are set pieces, some of them are plot devices, some of them are NPCs they run into. And as the creator, I have come up with 
a handful of different ways that the baddie can be hoist by their own petard, that the NPCs can be rallied together to save the day, or third thing. And the best part sometimes is being surprised when the players don't pick any of those <laughs> and go for option D. And like, even if they're only picking up like a, a piece here and a scrap there, and oh, we're going to use that thing over there in the tower on, on in the observatory. Um, all of these things still follow the rules of the universe of, yes, there's jiggery pokery going on. There's flying by the seat of your pants, problem solving. And it feels like the show, you know, there's that desperation of like, we've got to get this done because of the ticking clock, because of the advancing alien horde and so forth. Um, that is really one of my favorite parts of a game. Um, I've had a, uh, an enjoyable experience in the last couple of weeks to run the Wages of Joy twice for two teams that had never heard of the mod before. And their reactions to it and their choices about what they decide, what buttons they decide to push and what shops they linger in front of are completely different experiences. And it's just so satisfying to put a sandbox together like that and just let people in and say, here you go. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well put, well put. But I mean, part of this podcast is obviously it's, it's recounting stories and and, and giving giving tips to uh, GMs. Mm-hmm. How, do you, how do you prepare your NPCs? Because I talked about having the trading cards and, and I, like I said, I'm not a good example, unfortunately, because I just like creating characters. You know, I just, I just like having a backlog of them. I like, I like the idea that there's someone on a remote planet that the players might only go to once, but there's a whole bunch of people there. So if they do go there, there's the sandbox. Mm-hmm. You know. So um, how, how about yourself when it comes to NPCs? That is a great question, Ryan. Um, when I am putting together a cast of NPCs, I'm thinking about things with a couple different hats on because it is a game, but it is also a show. A show needs to be easily followed by someone who is not rolling up characters themselves or sitting down to roll dice against these characters or with these characters. So one of the things I think about is how can I minimize it? I want to make sure I don't have more than say five or six primary at the outside, like five is pushing it, but five different NPCs that they can Mm -hmm. run into. Once I realize, okay, they're going to a glass factory. Who are they going to be able to speak to at a glass factory? Probably the foreman, maybe one or two of the employees. And most of the time, the next step for me, once I figured out the roles that'll be filled is the personality types that will go into those. Because as an actor, as a voice actor, I consider my own vocal, natural speaking voice like a scoop of vanilla ice cream. It is fairly plain, but it goes with everything. And if I just affect the tempo, then I sound like I'm a different person. And if I speed up and I start talking like this with the same voice and I don't change my pitch and I don't change the the cadence of my voice, then it sounds like I'm a different person because this person has places to go and things to do. But also the addition of accents so that you can immediately tell uh, that a different character is speaking, whether they're from Glasgow or for fun and giggles, you can make the character German because why not? They're speaking English anyway because of the TARDIS translators. Isn't that fun? I want to make sure the characters sound different from each other that they want different things from each other and that just by listening to them, 
you can recognize that they are different from the others. One of the best artistic design tips I ever heard, and this is strictly for visual character design. I may be misquoting this, but I believe it was Disney or a Pokemon suggestion that you should be able to tell who you're looking at just from the silhouette. Since it's not a visual medium for this, I want the characters we choose to be recognizable just from a sentence out of their mouth, you know? Yeah. So if, if there's a tour guide who's here to help you guys, you're like, no, sure, there's one, two, three more of you. Nice to meet you guys. What can I do for you? Do you need, do you need help to get to the observatory? This is the very serious Dr. Cook speaking, looking for Dr. Gogol. And there is that rasp in the voice to denote age and gravity. Yeah. And there's a slower cadence to the theme. Like, there is a lot you can do with a little to make these voices sound different from each other. Let's use Troubled Waters as an example. So you've, you've got the laboratory doctor who is up to no good and not happy to see anyone here. And then you've got the flash and patter guy, the showman. You know, he's, he shows up in tails and he's got little gold buttons on his jacket. And he's very snap and fancy and like, zap crab matter. And very glib and very in a hurry. Let's keep this going, huh? We've got places to be. Of course, then there's Dr. Golgol, who is, you know, pregnant and this close to a breakthrough. As long as these characters want different things, and even if their tone is just a little different, if the doctor is a little tired because she's been working full time and she's not getting the power she needs, <laughs> but at the same time, this voice in the same register is talking a little faster because it's the tour guide and she's chipper and she's in her 20s and she has a lot more energy. There is immediately that difference between the two. And once I have those characters, once I have an idea in my head of how they sound, then the process of switching from character to character when the PCs go from environment to environment gets to be that little bit easier to shift gears, present different voices and different characters without confusing the, the listeners as like, well, who the hell is that now? Because that sounds exactly like the other three PCs they're playing, you know, or NPCs yeah. they're playing. The, the immersion in that response, not everyone can do voices, but as long as you make them sound different, they don't have to be quote unquote authentic. Like, I can only do yeah. one French accent, and it is outrageously... Oui, oui, yes, the outrageous. Exactly. So, and that's fine. That's absolutely fine. I just want to say at this point that my favourite voice that you do is your grizzled late 19th century prospector that you did on, on Wibbly Wobbly a while ago. Oh, thank you. I love that. Thank one. you. I can't do that oh. one authentically. I think it's because I'm English, but, but I, do, I do love that voice. I mean, we say authentically, we say authentically. I was born and raised on the East Coast of the United States. I I personally don't think I have much of an accent, but that's because that's yes. my accent. Well, in my accent, even in England, I get accused of being, I mean, I, I have been up and down the economic and class spectrum according to people's interpretation of my accent. So I, I hear you. Understood. Then this is something we can also bring up in future episodes. Listeners, if you have questions for us, if you have questions for us about voice creation, about character creation, about simple things you can do with your voice to help make them that much more distinct from each other, because at this point, the catalog of characters, sometimes it is just a matter of tempo. Sometimes it is just a matter of pitch. Sometimes it is just a matter of where in your own skull you are throwing your voice. Because right now, this is the sound of it as it passes out of my vocal cords. But if I aim my voice up a little higher, then we get up into this more nasal register. And all of a sudden, the accent is right there. And we're talking a little bit faster. 
Like you can do these things, you can practice these things, and like slipping in and out of these roles gets that much easier with a little practice, you know. But it's a great question. Thank you for asking. Well, one one thing actually that, that I remember reading about was Stephen Fry, who does the audiobooks for the Harry Potter series. Harry Potter. He literally, mm-hmm. to start with, he was just doing the voices, and then by the time he got to like the third or fourth book, they had to send him a CD with examples of all the characters and their voices so he could make sure he could be consistent throughout the whole run. And he ended up doing so many different voices that they, like I said, they had to give him a, a, an archive recording to make sure. A yeah. primer. So, <laughs> yeah. It's getting a little bit that way with my campaign. So, and, and and Casey, you can actually do voices. So I can only imagine what, what you must do to keep it in your head. The, you, the podcast, um, you're, what, episode three now? Yes, uh, by the time this episode comes out, we'll have released three full mods, Through the Looking Glass, Troubled Waters, and one of my personal favorites, The Wages of Joy. So, you've not had that many recurring NPCs yet? No, not yet. It's certainly not played by yours truly. Um, the only the only recurring... Oh, sorry, I was just wondering, what are you, do you have any plans to make sure, if you've got these recurring NPCs, depending on how many there are, how are you going to keep track of the voices? Are you just going to go back and listen or are you going to make notes? Because it's because this is something I have to juggle with because I've got a lot of recurring NPCs by season, you know, halfway through season three out of five. So, I mean, keeping track, keeping like a little list, a little character list of their primary traits, who you've cast them in in your head. Like one of the characters in an upcoming mod, the of Lantern and the Smoke. A sci-fi mod that I'm almost through mixing. One of the characters is just described very simply as he's compared very quickly to Stephen Merchant. Mm. And when I've got my PC, when my NPC list, especially if it's a recurring character, casting them in my head off of an actor or a voice that is either in my range or one that I can readily imitate helps. It helps shift into that voice a little easier, but making myself a cheat sheet of who sounds like what and what the goals are this episode makes it that much easier to keep track. Do you know, like, for example, okay, the voice you just did, what do you call that? Right, I will do my haughty English professor voice for this character. You know, do you have like a code name for them, things like that? That's a great, that's a great question. Honestly, it's just a shout out to classic who, because Horror of Fang Rock, one of my favorite episodes with Leela and the first Doctor, which was also the first appearance of yeah. the Rutans, there was this older lighthouse keeper who was very salt and very grim and gruff and talked like this. And once the Rutan had taken him over, all joy left his voice and he became very gravelly indeed. And that's basically just my take on that particular barrel-chested, older, gruff Brit. <laughs> Is that how you'd write it down? Horror of Fang Rock Guy and Nessie's voice? That's a good question. So I'm looking at right now the cheat sheet I made of sequence and characters for Troubled Waters. And the character descriptions are thus. Dr. Cook, a heavy set man of sour disposition with a receding head of white hair. He wears a lab coat over a three-piece suit and blazed with a Caspian 6 logo. From that description, I know I'm describing the gentleman from Horror of Fang Rock that I have recast in this matter. And then we've got Dr. Henrietta Golgol, a tired-looking sandy brunette in a deep Viridian jumpsuit. She's heavily pregnant and looks to be about eight and a half months along. And for her, 
Her voice is more just kind of beleaguered. We're leaning a little bit into the feminine half of my own voice, and she's got a lot to do, and she doesn't have a lot of help, and she just sounds kind of exasperated, but well-meaning, and that carries through. And then there's Dr. Lomo, who is more nasal, a clean-cut scientist who does not like anything you are doing here. But the pitch of my voice has not really changed that much, you know? But the next one in the line is this reporter, this journalist, uh, Greg Clatch. I'm tired, I've been doing this for ages, I'm hungry, and I'm just looking around. Gotta be some free food around here. Yeah. And there are other characters that didn't even get used in that mod, including a robot. But by just focusing on attitude as a starting point sometimes, that can really help inform where a voice comes out and how and the cadence of it and everything. Because with the exception of Dr. Cook, who is down here and slow and leans into the vocal fry. Well, we've got Dr. Gogol and she's over here. And we've got the tour guide who's a little hap- who's a little more pep in her step, you know? But there's not a whole bunch of difference, but those voices are still distinct from each other, you know? Yeah, that was a bit of a quick masterclass there in uh, little nips and tucks you can make with voices there. Like, I want this show to be something that folks can listen to, not only for inspiration, but also some practical tips. I do think there's definitely room in future episodes to bring on other voice actors and talk about how we go about not just developing NPCs into characters that can be interesting and compelling for your PCs to play around, play with and play against, but also how they're developed. Hmm how they vocally come together, because part of this show, part of this game, is about meeting things that are new and different from you. Oh, absolutely, yes. You know? And considering that sound is doing 95% of the heavy lifting, barring visual aids on the day from a game, um, then absolutely the vocal characters are are a, a big part of making that special and unique. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's obviously lots of things you can do as a GM to make stuff stand out, but at the end of the day, it's people talking to each other. So how you address people verbally mm-hmm. is the critical element. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. I, at the moment, my, my game is across um, Discord, which is good, but also quite limiting. So I've had to force myself to be creative in other ways. Like I, I ran a, um, a Harry Potter game for four years. Because it, it was in person, I made so many props like Ministry mm. of Magic identification things. I literally carved <laughs> wands. Everyone had their own their own wand and things like that. I still make wands now. I got to sort of learn how to do it and everything. Nice. Whereas on Discord, it's all verbal. I, I put pictures up, obviously, but it's not quite the mm. same thing. So you have to, the, the voice is even more important. For example, like we don't use a video feed because it's just laggy. And, um, and basically the game is across f- five continents, four continents. So we have to, we, there's a sweet spot of time as well. But... Because we can't do a video feed, I usually, with my characters, and I'm, I, I can sort of picture you doing it as well around the table, the body language is really important in how you put characters across. You know, you might have characters mm-hmm. who wildly gesticulate, people who've got very clipped, closed off body language, people who put their hands on their face and things like that. You know, a look of mm-hmm. horror or a look of happiness is fairly universal. But if you can't show that, the voice is really important that you convey that verbally and distinctly and and like i said you don't have to be as talented as you are being a voice actor you can with lots of little things that some of which you've demonstrated an angry voice is an angry voice if you can't do an accent an angry voice is an angry voice you can convey that they're angry quite easily everyone's got an angry voice of some Mm -hmm. kind everyone's got a happy voice 
So, oh, sure. Yeah, the, the tone is the critical thing. So it's it's not important to get accents right. Just say, right, the person walks into the room, they're French, they've got an angry look on their face. And you just speak in your own voice, if you can't do another voice, but you sound angry. As long as you prefix it, mm-hmm. you know, because the idea is the tone is what's important. Me talking like this shows you that I'm angry. Doesn't necessarily show you where I'm from, but you can tell people that. But the key thing is that bit, that you get the yeah. emotive parts across. Yeah, I've been very fortunate with figuring out accents. Um, I have a very good ear for pitch and tone, so I can tell not only if something is off, but by how much, but that's only so applicable, mm. you know, to your own set of eardrums. I've been a dialect coach before on a show or two, working with actors to help get a Scottish brogue for a musical called Rooms. But you're right, the accent is not ultimately the point. It is the cherry on the cupcake, not the cupcake itself. Um, Like I have sat down at games where people play the doctor or, you know, a time lord or whatever, and they either don't bother with a British accent or start with one and abandon it like 30 minutes into the show or 30 minutes into the game or whatever. And that's fine. It's a game. The point is to have fun. Like, performance is only so much of it. Certainly not enough to induce pressure on oneself to perform. Absolutely, you know? yeah. You're not there to give yourself a headache on these things. It's just a matter of no. doing what you can with what you've got, essentially. And you have more than you may think you have, which is one of the things that I look forward to. Unless you do happen to be a Vulcan or a robot, everyone has a range of emotions, and you're just, you just voice those. Mm-hmm. I really do think acting classes and writing classes and improv classes are super useful for GMs uh, in a number of ways because acting lessons, I went to to school to study theater. Um, I got my bachelor's degree in theater. But learning to act, learning to put oneself into the headspace of a character so that you can understand but also carry out their choices, their lines, their reactions to things. Understanding how to do that, getting a little bit of experience in it, will help you embody characters. The same way that learning to write and take writing classes and figuring out, oh, this is how we build a story arc, or oh, this is how we can build choices that are motivated by what the character wants versus what happens to them in chapter four. These are important things, but they're also things you can pick up as you go. You know, it's a game. It is a game it is meant to be fun exactly for for all the effort you put into everything the whole point is that effort should be geared towards what will people enjoy when we're doing it like my my biggest bliss out of this is producing something that feels like doctor who i am very grateful for that show i love that show for better or worse the chance to tell stories where people can overcome hardship or discover new things about themselves or make new friends or find really, really, really surprising solutions to to challenges they didn't know they were going to face that day. That puts me in my happy place. It's external validation, but when when players say, when when a player tells you they really enjoyed that game, that's that's wonderful. Regardless of how you feel about what you've written, if if you get told the players, Mm -hmm. the players tell you they enjoyed it, then you've done your job. You can go home and sleep well that night kind of a thing, you know? I kind of get more enjoyment out of that part of it because, you know, you write a game and, and no matter how good you are a writer or bad, it's a crapshoot. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. 
and and so mm-hmm. your your one barometer is did people have fun that's the sort of like that's the gold mm. standard for for gming you know it's not did i write something that you know has rewritten the psychic landscape <laughs> have i impacted the zeitgeist yeah exactly exactly have i shifted paradigms you know <laughs> it's did people enjoy themselves and it doesn't matter what kind of fun it is if it's silly fun it's the fun part of it that counts yeah. you know whether it's made people think whether it's made people just laugh themselves silly it's it's the fun factor that is the is the ultimate barometer of anything in in role playing absolutely ryan how can our listeners get in touch with you i am on the socials so my twitter is at wwdwrpg so you can that's where that's the best place to find me and the Wibbly Wobbly Dicey Wicey podcast is coming back very, very soon. Uh, and you will be in Wonderful. one of them, in point of fact. Oh, how delightful. <laughs> <laughs> Indubitably, dear boy. So you will be, yes, So and we will be talking about how to create historical mods or episodes or scenarios, whatever you um, whatever you call them. So, yeah, that's, that's the place yes. to find us. And you can find the podcast Anywhere where you can find podcasts, you know the drill by now. You're listening to this, so you know what you're doing. And there will be links to everything for Ryan in the doobly-doo. I just want to say, Ryan, thank you so much for sharing so much of your time with us today. It has been a genuine treat and a pleasure talking with you about GameCraft. It's, it's been an absolute delight. It really has for me too. Thank you so much for inviting me onto your show. My pleasure. And for anywhere but now, because it's it's re- it's genuinely really good fun to listen to. Plus, I know where I can rip stuff off for now for my own campaign. So. <laughs> and finally, to our listeners, Another big thank you for sharing your precious time with us. If you feel it's been well spent, please share the joy of GMing with your friends who are looking to enjoy themselves. You can email your questions for future episodes to anywherebutnowpodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like me to run a game of Doctor Who for you, reach out on startplaying.games. Links to everything in the doobly-doo. If you like what you hear, leave a review, rate the show, and follow us on Twitter at Anywhere But Now with an underscore at the end and wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan, thanks again so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you kindly. From all of us, I'm Casey Jones. Thanks so much and have a good day.